Hello and welcome to episode 8 of 99 Bottles of Podcasts. I'm joined today by Sam Livingston Gray. Good morning, Coraline. And 99 Bottles of Podcasts sounds wonderful, but I think I have an even better idea, and that is Greater Than Code. Yay, and Greater I, Than Code. <laughs> and I am joined this morning as well by the extremely enthusiastic Jessica Kerr. I get excited about this podcast name every time we go back to it. However, today we do get to talk about 99 Bottles of object-oriented programming, we have today Sandy Metz and Katrina Owen. And Sandy is a programmer, teacher, author, and sometime consultant. Her career has spanned over 30 years, during which time she's dealt with long-lived applications that taught her to create practical solutions that produce working software that is easy to change. She's been a frequent speaker at conferences since 2009. We also have Katrina Owen. Katrina is a programmer who mostly works on web backends and Go and Ruby. She's obsessed with automating workflows and making code readable so that it's easy to change. She's a master of refactoring. Katrina created Exorcism.io, an open source project that helps people improve their programming skills. Katrina and Sandy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. We do want to spend some time today talking about the book, which I believe is out in beta form right now. Correct. I think it's really interesting that two people like you decided to collaborate on a book together. Can you talk a little bit about the origin of the idea? I have one question. Can you elaborate on like you? Sure. Very prominent members of the community, each with independent careers and great speaking experience and just high visibility, basically, is what I meant by people like you. People um, like two of my favorite people on the planet. <laughs> so we kind of accidentally ran into each other through... I think I originally reached out to Sandy because of her first book when it was in beta. And I was very, very excited about the book and gave her quite a bit of feedback on it. Um, and that ended up starting some conversations. And we kept in touch. And then my very first talk got accepted. And Sandy gave me feedback on that talk. So these conversations continued. That first book was Object-Oriented Programming in Ruby? No, yeah. Practical. Practical. The Pooter book, right? Mm-hmm. Tutor. Practical object-oriented development in Ruby. Design. Close though. I was close. Close enough. Google will fill in the gaps. It was very interesting when Katrina asked you, Coraline, to define who people like you are. And you mentioned a bunch of things. And I wrote some of them down. You said speakers. The impression I got was you were saying people like you who are well-known in some narrow definition of that word. Yeah. And it, it made me laugh because the conversations that we started having that led to this book happened long before we were well-known at all, yeah. <laughs> right? We were, I was known amongst, yeah, about a dozen people in Oslo. I was working on a book that I didn't want to write that I got browbeat into and that friends of mine who asked me, who seemed excited when I told them about it who, and who asked me if to give them like a copy of the beta, it would sink without a trace. They would never read it. And so we were people who were not at all known about anything. But part of the transition in certainly in my life, and I, I think it's probably true for Katrina too, that's happened over the last four or five years is as a result of thinking about and working on the things that led to the production of this book. Thinking about working on the book is what caused us to have more public ideas. It's not the inverse, right? It wasn't like we were all famous in some narrow part of the world and we decided to work together. We decided to work together and then that led to some more visible presence in the public world. Obviously, the ideas that you put in your first book, Sandy, really resonated with a lot of people. Wasn't that a surprise? <laughs> 
I remember reading the uh, pre-release version of the book on a plane coming back from D.C. with pneumonia and thinking it was absolutely amazing. To be clear, did the plane have pneumonia or did you? Oh, uh, yes. Sorry. Thank you for the associativity thing. I had the pneumonia. The plane was fine. And you said that you read the beta of the book. Was this Pooter or was it 99 Bottles? Oh, I'm sorry. This was Pooter. Yeah, I had paid for the preprint PDF and I was reading it on the way back and I thought, this is wonderful and I should read it again when I'm not sick, which I then did. You know, I never quite know how to respond to that. It's really wonderful. Like, imagine you're me. I struggled in basic anonymity to really explain things to my former self. When you sit and write, you have an audience in mind. And the audience I had in mind was my the younger me. And so I wrote that down with no expectation about what the future held. And so the fact that it was well-received came not only as a surprise, but it was deeply pleasing. You should all write books. That's really the lesson here. Working on it. Is that also the audience for your current book? I think that the audience for the current book is much more like me than like Sandy. And what I mean by that is someone who has less experience, certainly. I have a bit over 10 years of experience, not 30. So one of the reasons that Sandy and I started talking about many of these ideas is that Sandy has a view of the world which encompasses big ideas and a deep insight that comes from that understanding that is built on this instinct that we build over years and years and years and that is unexplainable. It's this thing where you just know. You know the answer. You know why it works or why it doesn't work or why it should be this way. And Sandy has that to an enormous degree. And I don't. (laughs) Um, I'm at the other end of, completely at the other end of the spectrum. So, you know that can't see the forest for the trees? Sandy jokes that I can't even see the trees because I'm in the weeds. (laughs) Well, I know. (laughs) That's great. And it's funny because it's true. Well, okay. Now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even, I would not say it that way, Katrina. I I mean, it's true. Like, here's what I would say. It became very clear to me early on in our collaborations that you needed to assemble a whole from a series of parts. And if I looked at a problem and saw the whole, and I mean, I don't want to describe myself as hand wavy, but I can be a little hand, like I have a lot of confidence that the parts are going to be findable if I understand the whole. I find the parts less interesting. Once I understand the whole, it's like, yeah, the parts are there, it'll work. But you really challenged me to be very definite about what the parts were. And mostly that that kind of challenge is interesting because mostly it turns out I was right that the parts would work out the way I imagined they would, but it's not always true, right? And so having someone that will say, like, tell me the details, basically write me the proof of this idea by building it up from the parts. I mean, that's the strength of our collaboration. I think that we're just enormously different in that way. Yeah. Katrina, you talked before the show about um, language hunters and fluency versus proficiency. Do you feel like that was a factor in the relationship you developed with Sandy over the course of writing the book? Like, Was there a a delta between fluency and proficiency that you both had, and how did that play out? I don't actually know that this came into play in the collaboration on the book. We both have a very high degree of fluency in very different skills. And so the skills that I have are this ability to go and build up a big picture from the very, very fine-grained details Whereas Sandy's skill, fluency, lies much more in the ability to see a big picture and understand how it fits together, if that makes sense. So the work that we did was, in one way, 
figuring out how to use my sort of detail-oriented approach to arrive at her big picture understanding. When you're communicating with people, it can be easier to convey a small part and let other people build it up than to start from a hole that they can't see yet. Oh, yeah. Exactly. So, you know, the book came out of a course that originally Katrina and I taught together where, like, so I wrote this book. People started calling me and wanting me to teach OO. My primary teaching technique at that point was my primary explanations consisted of some form of can't you just see, Mm. which is not very helpful. Right. And then I had Katrina, who was sort of the perfect guinea pig because Katrina was really great at refactoring. And so we went on a path. So I would say, look, here's the answer. Can't you see? And Katrina would say, well, no. (laughs) How did you know? (laughs) And I would say, well, can't you? I would just repeat myself, right? That annoying thing. Maybe I'd repeat it a little louder. Can't you just see? (laughs) (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So we had a whole bunch of conversations that led us to do a bunch of refactorings. And I was like, like everybody about refactoring, I was like, I thought I knew how to refactor, but I didn't actually. And Katrina, who had actually read Martin Fowler's book and done all the exercises, was actually quite good at refactoring, but didn't have overall guiding principles that would let her make choices of directions of refactorings, let's say, right? Does that seem correct, Katrina? Yeah, there's this thing, people who like me call me disciplined and meticulous, and people who don't call me anal and pedantic, but it's really the same thing. Like, I'm following this. (laughs) I have a process. I have, I follow these very, very low-level granular rules about how to refactor, and I know how to get places. I just don't always know where I'm going. And so we would have these discussions where, like, we would make up a set of rules. And then Katrina would go do the refactoring and I would watch her and I would say, no, no, that won't work. That's not right. It's got, it's got to be like this. And she'd be like, no, it breaks the rule. <laughs> I don't care that it breaks the rule. It's right. You know, one of the most powerful things that happened to me for sure. And again, I don't want to speak for Katrina, but I hope it also happened to her is that a deep rededication to the idea of how much value there is in working with people that are not like you. It It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. It was amazing for me too. Over and over again, we would have this disagreement, exactly what Sandy said, this is wrong. I'm like, it can't be wrong because the rule says it's right. And we'd arrive at an understanding of a better rule. Yeah. Every time. We would would disagree and disagree and disagree until we found the way of viewing it where we both actually agreed. And it wasn't like one person was wrong or the other person was right. We were both right and we had to find the lens. Yeah. And if there are rules, so here's what we wanted, right? Wouldn't it be great if you could take someone that didn't know a lot about OO and give them a series of rules? And if they just followed those rules, that would teach them how to find objects. It would teach them the things that I feel like I know after many years of experience. And that was the set of rules we were looking for. And it meant that there was no place where I could say, draw that cloud. You know, there's that joke where I could draw that cloud on the whiteboard that says a miracle occurs here, (laughs) right? Like if you're following the rules, they have to work all the way down. And so my challenge was to learn to articulate things that I was doing just on feeling. And Katrina's challenge was to continue to insist to me that we were not going to stop until we had a rule. I also, once the rules became correct or right or useful, 
I want to say useful more than correct. Yes. I was able to relinquish some of my dependence on them. Like once we were able to trust them, I could take bigger steps. I could feel comfortable with a variation on it or not necessarily following all of the details of it. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, you relaxed. Yeah, a little bit. This is really fascinating. So Sandy, I I totally understand that feeling of, I get it. What's your problem? And if you don't remember how you learned something, it's really hard to figure out how to teach it, which is important because that means that right after you learn something is the best time to write that tutorial or that blog post or that book. When you're an expert in it is not the best time. Amen. Yeah. I hear that a lot from people that I encourage to give talks. They're like, oh, but I'm not an expert on subject X. I'm like, no, talk about the process of learning subject X because that will yeah, perfect. that will resonate with people. Well, yeah. And if I can add to that, too, like I've given a couple of talks on things where I feel like I could almost pass for an expert on things, but I exhausted those topics very quickly. And now I'm like, well, I could give a talk, but I don't really know about what because my process has been like, I'm only going to talk about something that like uh, I could rant about for three hours. <laughs> right. So, yeah, people who are doing talks uh, earlier on in their proficiency. Yeah, it's great. They can bring people along. Y'all also said that Sandy is good at knowing where you're going and Katrina is good at the details of how to get there. That's, that a- yeah, I think now, no. yes. I mean, it's accurate was. enough. Yeah. <laughs> what's missing? I, yeah, what's missing there? I've, okay, so having written this book, Sandy knows how to get, like, the details of the process is absolutely, completely exposed and available. Sandy will no longer look at me refactoring and say, what are you doing? <laughs> that's annoying. That's, that's more like what I would say. That's annoying. Oh, my God. Yeah. Don't make me do that. Yeah. <laughs> We've both arrived at this understanding of what the process actually looks like. That's such a beautiful description of pairing as I like it, because I often find that like remembering why I'm doing something and what the real objective is is totally opposed to the details of the code, like in brain space. And I find it really helpful to have one part of the pair focused on each of those levels. And then, yeah, ideally you come together. That's beautiful. Certainly our collaborations changed how I write code. Yeah, same here. Well, it sounds like that was worth everything. At least I would think it was. Boy, I would hate to go back. (laughs) (laughs) Never go back. Yeah, and I wouldn't want to have not done it. So in reading your book, I was reflecting back on my own sort of professional development over the years. And I I had at one point, maybe four or five years ago, I had reached the point where my refactoring skills were decent enough that I had learned to trust that a series of small cleanups would sort of remove enough of the obfuscating details that I could see a little bit further and that I would eventually, if I did a bunch of little sort of cleanup things, it would it would let me see a larger scale design that I could eventually get to. But uh, at that point, I already had, you know, years of exposure to both refactoring skills and some basic OO design concepts. And uh, this book, I felt like in some ways it came a little bit late for me, but it, uh, in other ways it was like, oh, wow, that's really amazing because it took all of that stuff that I had kind of halfway understood and made it very explicit, which I thought was really great. And it seems to me that where I was was proficient at some level N where N is probably two or three minus where Sandy is. But this book seems like it's good for people who are at like level one or two in their 
in their fluency. And it seems like it's a really good way to bring people up faster. And so it's another one of those things that I really wish that I had had earlier in my career. Uh, is that kind of what you were hoping for when you wrote this? You know, it's interesting that you would say one or two of fluency, because when I teach, when I have my hands on people who are going through this content, what I find it's the more advanced people that have difficulty with it, not the less advanced people. The kids. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. The kids just do it because they don't know anything. And so they, they have no prior <laughs> learning that gets in the way. And they're so, not held back by their previous successes. They are not. And, and they don't think they know anything. I and mean, what happens is that the people who have the most experience, like I should let them argue with me in the course about what a bad idea, like they hate it all. They absolutely hate it. <laughs> they absolutely hate it. They're like, why are you making me do this step-by-step refactorings that are intended to expose the bones of the abstractions? When, why are you making me do that tedious thing when I can just look at the problem and know the answer and I just want to go write it down? What they have no idea, the, the solutions that those people write, one of the things the book does is at the very beginning it says, please go do the 99 bottles of beer exercise before you start. They write the most horrifically overcomplicated solutions. It's astonishing how terrible they are. And we didn't used to make them do it before we taught them. But we started doing that because they don't believe how bad their stuff is. Like we have as a business, as a set of programmers, we have gotten to the point where there's a kind of over complex solution that we somehow have placed a lot of value on. And we use that complexity to, oh God, I hate to say this, there are ways in which we make ourselves feel better and defend our jobs by writing overly complex solutions. <laughs> Yeah. And we're very attached to the way it makes us feel to be smart and clever and yeah. write things that are complex. And so the people who are invested in complexity have a very difficult time with these techniques because they are absolutely simple. The first chapter, you present the problem of the 99 bottles of beer song, and you work through four different implementations of it. And I have to confess that my own implementation when I did the exercise was somewhere between the third and the fourth. And when I saw the fourth, I was like, well, yeah, of course you do it that way. But um, what I'm curious about is how easy was it to write the bad code for the first example? Oh, it was so much fun. <laughs> fun. Okay. Oh, it was fun so good. Because we had seen all of these directions of like all of these ways in which people write code, right? The first example is you do everything in line. And so I just took what I had already seen and went to the absolute extreme and wrote that. And I knew exactly where I was going, so it was pretty easy to do it. In the second version, I had also seen people do this gilding, this baroque, like as many indirections as you can that actually don't help you go anywhere. And so that too was pretty fun. And then the third example, this is the classic, you see this type of code everywhere in Ruby especially if people do not have a lot of experience with design and have been following rules that the community has set out for them uh, without really understanding what those rules might get you. Could you describe that example? Yeah. So you have a bunch of tiny methods and each method contains a fragment of an idea and each method is named very, very, very explicitly to kind of describe this fragment. And none of the fragments are they nothing coheres into an actual solid concept 
And so it's impossible, even though the code looks like it's got small methods, it seems like it's simple, it's small, it's, it, it's pretty short, like, even though it seems like it should be good code, it's impossible to understand. And of course, in addition to this, there's some state that mutates, but it gives you back it like it's it mixes query and command. Yeah. You know, if you think of OO as a place where you give names to abstractions and where an abstract concept has more than one implementation, you create objects that you polymorphically send messages to. There's a way in which that describes all of OO, right? You give names to abstractions and having abstractions let you compose problems of different implementations of the same abstraction, then the solution, this solution number three, looks like OO code, but it violates all those rules. They don't really identify the abstractions. They don't really give them good names, and there's nothing polymorphic about it. And so despite the fact that it might score well on some metric tools, and it might you look at it, and it looks like it should be object-oriented, but it's really not. It just uses an OO language to express a problem in a way that's very confusing. The way that you framed that just now, Sandy, uh, had an imp interesting implication, which was that it sounds like you might be saying that until you have more than one implementation, you shouldn't bother with the abstraction. Yeah, well, the short answer is yes. Right. It's, it's like right. The, our problem. I think the hubris that we have as humans is we look at problems and we believe that we see the abstractions. And certainly I did that before I met Katrina. Right. Can't you just see? I know it's in right. there. Right. But the truth is, far greater minds than me, I'll, I'll quote Martin Fowler, they're saying that you should tolerate a little duplication until your occurrences of duplication start revealing the things that really, truly are the same. And that means hanging out. You know, we, we learned that dry rule early on in our programming careers. Uh. And it's because people teach us dry because we don't know. We can't recognize anything but duplication. Like We don't know anything. And so... That pressure that we put on kids to dry things out too soon, when, what does it mean when you dry something out? You take two identical copies of code, you give them a name, you put it somewhere, and you call that name from the place where the duplication used to be. That That is doing what I said a minute ago, right? It's, it's declaring an abstraction and giving it a name. But if you're wrong because you don't have enough information to know what's going on, then you end up in a situation where the code doesn't really tell the story of the domain. I think it's a and major because, problem that people apply dry, don't repeat yourself, and also Yagni, you ain't going to need it way too early in the process. And it's because when I go, when I teach classes and I ask people, okay, in chapter one, the fourth example is an example we call shameless green. And it just, it's just a case statement that returns the four different variants <laughs> of verses and there's tons of duplication. And so one of the things that happens is when we show people that solution, they all have the same reaction that I forget who said it a while ago who said, oh, this is so simple, I should have written this. When I ask people, we show them that, and I say, is this good enough? They're like, oh, that's great. Everybody says, oh, I love that. It's such a relief to see that code. It's so obvious. And then I say, what happens if you submit it to code review? They're like, oh, you get <laughs> hammered. You get hammered. <laughs> right? And so now we have this situation where I've got 30 people in a room, and they all say, th they all agree, this code, this simple code is better than all the complicated solutions. And then I ask them that if, if their teams at work will allow them to check it in and walk away, and they all just laugh. That's terrible. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> that people want to activate dry when they see duplicate code, but just because the code's the same doesn't mean the idea is the same. Yeah. <laughs> I have thoughts about this. Oh my goodness. And feelings. So many feelings. One of the problems that we see 
when people try to tackle duplication is that they do it in a way that is exactly the opposite of what design says that you should do. So in every single book that I've ever read about design, they talk about encapsulating the part that varies. But when people see duplication, they'll, they'll look at two things that are pretty similar, and a lot of those little pieces are exactly alike, and then there are pieces that are not alike. What they end up doing is they encapsulate the piece that is identical, but it's not an entire idea. Instead of taking a look at the two things that are similar, that have similar ideas in them, and then encapsulating the part that varies. Yeah, so can I, can I put that a different way? Please do. So sameness is interesting, but difference is more interesting. And if you have an abstraction that represents itself, like in two different ways, let's use the 99 bottles of beer song, right? Sometimes you say the word bottles, and sometimes you say the word bottle. Uh, two bottles of beer on the wall, two bottles of beer, take one down and pass it around, one bottle of beer on the wall. So that's, that's the first uh, unique verse if, as you're counting down from 99. It's the first verse with a new rule. And so in all the verses, they all say of beer and on the wall. And you see that repeated over and over and over again. And it's really easy to look at it and feel as if you ought to take that duplication out, hide it behind a method, give it a name, send a message. However, the of beer and the on the wall part are really boring. They're sameness. The difference, though, between bottles and bottle means something. And giving that a name is a more powerful, that is a more useful abstraction. The name of the difference is more interesting than the name of the sameness. And so we often, it's really easy, we create abstractions. If I can put words in Katrina's mouth, right? I think what she was saying is that we look at things and we create abstractions for the sameness and that's easy and we leave out the difference and the difference is really the thing that matters most. Yes, and it's actually really hard to name that piece that's the same. What do, what do you name on the wall? Like it's not an idea, it's not a concept. So it gets really, really, really hard to find a name that actually encompasses what that is because it's not really even a thing. Yeah, that's yeah. something I would put in a constant and I would name the constant on the wall in all caps. <laughs> exactly. Right. And, th and then when you change it on the wall, the constant would still be named on – when you change the value on the wall, the constant would still be named on the wall. And you have this huge problem about whether you're going <laughs> to – right? Like I worked someplace once that had a method called blue box that returned a gray box. Oh, perfect. Very nice. Yeah, right? yeah, it's yeah. That. I've, I've totally seen that kind of thing. And I love that phrase that it doesn't represent a complete idea. So don't abstract it. If I need to change every place that says on the wall, I have command shift R. Here you go. I was thinking about this uh, actually just yesterday. I remembered that uh, somebody that, uh, that I worked with had once written on the whiteboard, instead of dry, they'd written whatever it takes to spell out wet. And, uh, it got me thinking again about the ways in which I've seen the dry principle be horribly, horribly misapplied. And I've done this many times myself. And it seems to me that the sort of the fundamental problem with dry is that it doesn't tell you what kind of repetition is important. And as new developers, the thing that we can see most easily is structural duplication. This piece of code has the same shape as that piece of code. And so they must be abstracted out. Whereas I feel like the more important part of repetition is conceptual duplication, right? And that's where I kind of almost prefer once and only once, because uh, it has that emphasis on once, this idea that you should have your an idea that is in your code represented in a place. Yeah, I don't know. Am I off base with that? No, I, I totally agree. Like if you think of uh, don't repeat yourself as don't repeat the idea rather than don't repeat 
the exact keystrokes that got typed on the keyboard. Like the keystrokes could be incidental duplication or they could represent some kind of duplication that they could be a kind of duplication of a partial abstraction that you don't understand yet. What we don't want to do is duplicate ideas all over because when the ideas change, that's when we get screwed, especially if the implementations of those ideas represent different characters. Like you can't find them. If you do that, yeah. right? But on the wall, like I have a text editor that can fix that. That problem is really not – It's the duplication is not very costly and the problem is not very interesting. And yet we spend most of our effort working on that problem rather than the real problem, which is naming the abstractions. Right. So like the classic example that I think of is a date range where if, you know, maybe in your application, you're passing around something that in some places the parameters are named from and to and other places they're named start date and end date. But really the the underlying concept is that you have a range of time in which you're interested in something happening. Yeah. An interval. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that the data clump code smell, right, is the name of that code smell. Mm-hmm. And so you it, this is a situation where our names mislead us. We introduce difference in those argument names, the parameter names, and they make it appear as if things are not the same when the underlying idea really is the same, but we can't find it because of the extraneous differences we've imposed upon the code. Right. Because the keystrokes weren't the same. Mm-hmm. Yep. I have a question. So you mentioned that people love the simple code, but they don't think it would pass code review. Is your book, 99 Bottles of OOP, a new set of rules that we can apply to code review? Well, maybe. Uh, Martin Fowler's refactoring like became the standard for code review at the place that I worked. And maybe, maybe yours will help with that. So there's this thing that happens if you give stuff a name, like SOLID, for instance, the SOLID acronym. You know, all those principles of object-oriented design are pretty well known because they gave it a good name. And Katrina and I took it. Well, and also Martin Fowler, you know, he named the, he and Kent Beck named the code smells and then they named the refactorings, the gang of four book, they gave names to patterns. And so there's, there's something really powerful about naming things. And Katrina and I kind of took that to heart and we tried to give things names. Like we name the simple solution that doesn't create abstractions first. We name it shameless green and we create a definition for shameless green. It's to write a solution that optimizes for understandability without regard to changeability. And so it may be, I don't know, that this kinds of things will start showing up in code reviews. It would be wonderful if they did. We had a guest question from Benjamin Fleischer. He asked, in what ways is 99 bottles of richer kata than Fizzbuzz? I'd like to try to tackle that. 99 Bottles has two interesting things. One is that there is enormous amounts of duplication, and Fizzbuzz does not have that. The other thing is that it has just enough algorithmic complexity to lead you, potentially lead you astray. If you change the requirements on Fizzbuzz, it really just changes what numbers you put in the modulo or whatever. Isn't there sort of a meta version of the Fizzbuzz or... If I'm remembering correctly, it might, it might even have been the original formulation of FizzBuzz, but I thought that there was another version of it that was to write something that you could give modulos and numbers and it would automatically output the right, give you a program that would output the right thing. But even that, you're right, is not nearly as complicated and interesting as uh, 99 bottles. Well, and I think let, let's not mistake, like the goal of the 99 bottles of Oot book is not to write a great solution to the 99 bottles of beer song problem. <laughs> yes. right? Isn't that a problem that all of us face in our real lives? Come on. <laughs> right? 
and, and so fizz, like in some ways, fizz buzz is an exercise that they give you when you're trying to be interviewed to see whether you can write a good solution to fizz buzz. The 99 Bottles book is about how to do OO. And the 99 Bottles problem is a convenient problem around wit that brings up many, many, many issues in OO that give us a chance to talk about mutability. It gives us a chance to talk about inheritance. It gives us a chance to talk about simplicity. It gives us a chance to talk about how to deal with conditionals. And so just because it's a convenient problem doesn't mean, like it's not fizz buzz. It is true that if it was your only job was to write a solution and be done, if that was the point, the code, then yeah, I, mean, I don't know, it's more complicated than fizz buzz arguably, but maybe all, you know the same kind of thing, except on a bigger dimension. But that's not the point at all. The point is to teach people how to think about objects and to deal with change and given a problem domain that is more interesting than bank loans. That kind of ties into one of our other guest questions that came from Craig Buchek. He said the 99 Bottles book seems to document the trade-offs we've been implicitly making, and he wonders if this could possibly be a first step in automating some of those decisions. Can we take now explicit rules and partially automate the process of programming? I think one of the key words in his question is decisions. A lot of these things are trade-offs that you make based on your understanding. And I don't think you can automate understanding. Yeah. It's interesting. The refactorings are mechanical, no doubt about it, right? And some, like many languages have refactoring browsers where you can just say, I want to inline this temp or, you know, do an extract class on this stuff. And certainly once you choose a refactoring, the steps are pretty well known, but at every decision point, there are many, 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 many choices that you could make. And that's what people want us to teach them. They do need us to teach them refactoring because it turns out most, most of us don't really know that, but it's not so much that, but how to decide what refactoring to do. That There's a lot of judgment and experience involved in that. And we're, we're trying to give people a leg up down that experience path. Yeah, that was one of the things that I loved about the book was that rule of find the smallest difference and make it the same. That was really illuminating for me, I think. Yeah, it came out of the whole issue about as programmers, we're really attracted to the hard problems and we tend to skip over the easy ones. Mm-hmm. And what we found doing those refactorings and trying to figure out what the rules were was that if we solved the simple problems first, the hard things got simple. But if we skipped the simple things, if we left them as artifacts in the code and went and worked on the hardest things first, very often the hardest things were unsolvable. And that was a really powerful experience. I want to go meta for a second and ask Katrina. I was really fascinated by the conversation we had last week. And um, I'd never heard of Sparrow cards before. Would it be worthwhile to talk about Sparrow cards and talk about a process for building that intuition that is impossible to teach? I would love to talk about it. So Llewellyn Falco created something which he calls Sparrow decks because he initially, he used PowerPoint decks, slide decks, to show people pictures of different types of sparrows in order to teach them to recognize the difference between different species of sparrows. This was inspired by some of the work that Kathy Sierra has done around learning and creating passionate users and developing instinct, developing skill, which has her insights came from, among other things, the skill that people who are able to determine the gender of a day-old chick have. In the poultry industry, if you're trying to optimize for uh, laying eggs, 
it's really important to give all of the good feed to the girl chickens and not the boy chickens, because the boy chickens in the egg-laying uh, varieties of, of chickens are not going to be economically viable. However, it's really hard to tell the difference between a female and male chick uh, when they're a day old. It usually takes several weeks before they're obviously one or the other. And there are experts who are able to see this at a glance. They can sex up to 1,200 chickens per hour, baby chicks. And they just know. And they, it's impossible to explain how they know. And so this has inspired a lot of research into how does the brain develop an intuition that is correct? Because they have a 97% accuracy rate on guessing the gender of the Dale chick. And it's clearly based on experience. The brain is clearly recognizing something, even though it's not able to say what it is. And so Llewellyn Falco used this in order to create these PowerPoint decks to experiment with this idea of can you speed up people's acquisition of intuition? There's actually been a lot of scientific research in the past 25 years on this idea of speeding up the acquisition of intuition. It's called perceptual learning. And if you want to go look at some of the some of the research, the name to look for is Philip Kelman. He has done a lot of fascinating research with very, very systematically building learning modules that help people acquire very, very complex skills like pattern matching in algebra or in teaching middle schoolers to solve fractions, not even to solve fractions, but to recognize the type of problem that they're dealing with. Are you dealing with a find the part or find the whole? Because if you can't tell the difference, then you're going to have a hard time solving the problem. Visual navigations for airline pilots. So he's delved into very, very complex skills, and he's found that you can deliberately speed up the acquisition of this instinct to the point where people are spending a few hours instead of months and years acquiring a skill. Do your classes work like that? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> it would be an interesting thing. I mean, Katrina, you've thought about using that for exorcism, right? I have thought of doing not directly exorcism, but a, a separate project that builds various modules to help people recognize for example, with code newbies, one of the one of the things that people lose a lot of time on is recognizing syntax errors. They'll be like debugging their code for three days before they re realize that it's just a missing brace or a quote or whatever. And I think that it would be fairly straightforward to build something that would help train people to recognize syntax errors. Train them um, to read error messages. Uh, that too. So I which is hard. <laughs> One of the things that's hard about error messages is that we know exactly where in this big old stack trace to look. We know, like, we, we look for specific, specific keywords or we look, we, know, we kind of recognize the patterns of things that lead us to the right things, but we don't really necessarily know how we know or what we're looking for. We just kind of know. And so I think it would be useful to find ways of helping people learn that. Such uh, as compilers that actually output polite, sweet error messages? For example, <laughs> it's possible. Yeah, yeah so Elm think, does that. Oh, oh sorry, thanks. No, I just think that it would be possible to, there are so many ways in which we use this intuition, this pattern matching ability when we're programming from the very, very simple things like syntax errors to the very, very complex things like code smells and abstractions and design patterns, debugging, troubleshooting. I think we could do a lot to help people learn these things. 
It's time to thank another one of our $10 level patrons, Jer Lance. Jer is a software developer, teacher, and a self-professed opinionated jerk from Livonia, Michigan, and is at J-E-R underscore on Twitter. Thank you, Jer, and thank you to all of our awesome contributors. Uh, if you would like to support us, please visit patreon.com slash greater than code, and that link will also be in the show notes for your clicking convenience. We have another guest question from Darren Wilson, who asked Avdi the same question and is interested in your answer. What non-Ruby technologies are you interested in right now? I want to get good at JavaScript. I know it's not necessarily the sexiest thing, but it feels real. And speaking of Elm, it feels like I can combine my desire to be better at JavaScript with my desire to learn more about functional programming. Elm will not get you better at JavaScript. Well, Elm is a bypass of JavaScript. It does not. It's not a transpiler. But it just seems like I would have to understand some. Are you telling me that uh, my nope. goal, my goal of making both those things happen at once by learning Elm is not, I'm not going to be able to combine them? Uh, if you like wrote some native JavaScript modules, but Elm is totally not a transpiler. It is a substitute. Yeah. So I was going to do both. I was going to write the JavaScript and then write the Elm. Does that seem valuable? Yeah. Give me advice. Come on. Okay. So you could like write some JavaScript that interacts with Elm which is much more painful than either by itself. I was thinking more about solving the problem, taking (laughs) a problem and solving it with both variants. Oh, like separately? Yeah. Yeah. Doing a JavaScript solution and then doing an Elm solution. Yeah, that would be fascinating. Actually, I would suggest you do it in the opposite order. Oh, really? Do an Elm solution and then your JavaScript solution might come out a little more interesting. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, I will. Because I have a whole, I have things I need to do that ought to involve JavaScript. Oh, I should say this now, too. We're, we have every intention of putting the 99 Bottles book out in other language variants. That and is the so first, cool. Well, and the first one on our list is JavaScript. Cool. It's a whole world of people who I think would find this stuff useful. Yeah. I wrote some TypeScript last night for the first time, and I think I might be able to bear it. Really? As oh, opposed to JavaScript. Don't make me. Don't thank me. <laughs> it's, it's just JavaScript with type annotations. Exactly. And I desperately need those. <laughs> I'm just, you know, I'm a dynamic typist from way back. Yeah, you know, I am too, but I'm starting to get really impatient with Ruby. <laughs> yeah, but it never breaks for me. I don't get type errors in Ruby. Write trustworthy code and trust it. It's easy. But, but Sandy, aren't we writing code for other people to <laughs> modify? Because I'm working but, in the legacy Ruby right now, and trust me, it's not friendly. I know. I, I totally, you know, I recognize that I'm a little bit of an outlier on that, and that what works for me doesn't always work for everyone else. I mean, if you own your own code base, and you know, if you if you write it and you maintain it, That's then a big you if. can really lean exactly. You can really lean on the dynamism in in a way that makes you feel yeah. confident and safe. But I totally understand. I'm I'm not I'm not making fun of the statically typed people. I'm not. I can cope with my weaknesses with the help of a compiler. <laughs> what about you, Katrina? What are you interested in right now? Well, I have been writing a fair amount ago, uh, and I've been participating in a lot of sort of Go events and Go things, and I really enjoy the language. But I have to admit that at the moment. I have more interest in things like people interactions and strategy and things that are not directly technical, but that would getting better at them would help me do my work more efficiently and be more impactful, both in terms of work and open source. Are you saying there's value in being something more than an emotionless robot that produces code? Is that what you're trying to say? 
It pains me to say this, but yes. <laughs> that you might, in fact, be greater than code? <laughs> yeah, that's where I've been trying to become a better person lately. There's leverage in that. I mean, that yeah. What makes our, our work as knowledge workers so valuable is that we have an incredible amount of leverage by teaching the computer how to do things a thousand million times. And when we learn about working with other developers, we increase our leverage further. Especially when we talk about or when we think about communities that arise around code. And um, not every GitHub project is going to have a community around it, but there are some that do. And understanding the human dynamics and human interactions goes a long way toward making sure that a community is welcoming and friendly and productive and not toxic. Once a project starts growing so that there are more, the more people are involved, the, the larger both the user base and the contributor base for a project is, the less important the code becomes. Like the more important the interactions and the mentoring and the community and the issues and the discussions and the code reviews become. And we're not very good at measuring those things and it sometimes can seem like we don't value those things. Yeah. Code is easy. People are hard. If you want to get things done, you got to get good at people. We got to hear Katrina talk about some of her approach to teaching. Avdi asked to hear about Sandy's unique approach to teaching. So that's a plant because Avdi has taught with me. (laughs) (laughs) Which is why I wanted to make sure we asked it (laughs) because it sounded like there's some dirt there. There's okay. Here's the deal about teaching, right? Teach. So think about this. When you're up in front of a classroom, everybody's looking at you and they're all paying attention and hanging on your every word. It's so tempting to just natter on and on and on and bore everyone to death. We know that listening is not how people learn. And so I have a psychology degree. When I started teaching, I did a bunch of research about how people best learn. It boils down to basically that you learn by doing. And the best way to help someone who's trying to learn by doing is to ask them questions. And so in my course, when we are helping people, we only get to ask them a series of leading questions. And the leading questions are, there's a very carefully curated set of leading questions to get students to think of any idea. You know that feeling when you're pairing with someone and they keep trying to explain something to you and you just wish they'd shut up and give you a minute to think? Like they're trying to tell you. And then contrast that feeling with the feeling you have when you suddenly get that moment of insight. You're like, oh, I see. And so the whole course is structured around letting people have the moment of insight rather than telling them things. And it takes a lot of work to get the questions right. And it takes a lot of self-control not to try to tell people things. But it does, it does seem to work. Restraint is really hard. It's really hard. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, in the class, I'll have people who know the answers to the questions and they can almost not prevent themselves from telling other people. And so there'll be some, you know, for maybe there'll be some topic that someone already gets really well. And I'll have to tell them, you can help, but you can only ask questions. And and it almost makes them mute. We're very bad at this, right? If like, try this next time you're trying to help someone with something, don't tell them, just ask them things and see if you can get them to have the idea. Yeah. People are much more likely to run with an idea if they thought of it or if they have the feeling that they thought of it. And they'll remember it. 
they'll apply it. It'll fit in their context. The number of ways in which it's good for you to have the idea yourself rather than be told, it's along a bunch of different dimensions, it's better. And it's what we do if we are interested in having people learn rather than having us be the ones who get to teach. Hmm. Yeah, because it's it's about the audience. It's not about us if we're going yeah. to effectively transfer information. Yeah. So, what, you know, who cares if I teach? What we care about is whether people who learned the things they wanted and needed to learn. That's the point. It's about them. It's not about us. I have um, one more question, and it comes out of a conversation, Sandy, that you and I had back in September at Beyond the Code. You said something really interesting to me that sort of stuck with me. You said you're looking forward to the day when no one asks you to speak anymore. Can you talk <laughs> about what you meant by that? Sure. I think the community is made stronger and more interesting and more competent by lots of different points of view. And th this is code in some ways for saying there aren't enough women in software, right? I find that I, you know, I speak at conferences now and by and large, I get invited to speak. And, th and that's a symptom. Well, in some ways, I, I hope it reflects the effort I put into my talks, but it's also a symptom of the fact that there's not enough diversity on stage. And I feel strongly that the world will be a better place when it is such that no one ever asked me to speak because it will mean that there are lots of women, there are lots of people of color, there are lots of older people. There's a whole, you know, there, I fit neatly into a, a bunch of demographic categories that I can add a lot of diversity to your conference, right, in a bunch of different categories. But when no one invites me, it means that there's enough diversity so that I don't matter. And so I want two things, right? I want a world where no one asks me to give a talk and I want a world where people who are outside the mainstream can give crappy talks and no one mentions it. Those two things. If those two things were true, the world would be a better place. Yeah. I I'm glad that people invite us to speak. That's an improvement over them not caring. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, we're the easy ones. We're sure to be a hit. Exactly. And we the want the average women developer to succeed just as much as the average male developer and people of color and people who didn't go to MIT. White women are the easy form of diversity. I'd like to see us, you know, yep, be, be more diverse one. in other ways. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, there is a way in which I feel like I often say yes when people ask me to speak. And I do it partly because seeing someone on stage that reflects even part of a different demographic makes the space more welcoming to everyone. Mm -hmm. And so it feels important for us to be there because of that. But we need more. Yep. And hopefully by being more than there used to be, then we're pushing our way up the spiral because more people will feel welcome and then more people will submit and then more people will get invited. And eventually we'll have 50-50 or maybe, I don't know, I'd be happy with 40-60 gender balance and it just won't matter anymore. Yeah, exactly. That means that everybody who's listening to this, it feels that they're in an underrepresented category needs to submit an abstract to give a talk at a conference. Yeah, because gender is still is still level one is, in my opinion, the least problematic of the demographics that are being left out. I would also love to see more talks by people of color and women and people from other marginalized populations that don't have to do with being a part of a marginalized population. Everyone loves a tech talk. Just give that. And it's the thing we were talking about earlier, right, that if you know things now, that you didn't know a year ago, your past self would be grateful if you would give that talk. Yes. And what you said earlier about Sandy, about your your audience is your younger self. 
So just speak to the person you were a year ago, because there's a lot of people who are that person. Yeah. And, and the other thing, you know, people often feel afraid to give talks because they feel like every, you know, everybody knows what I know and that I'm going to get criticized somehow. But it's not going to be, you know, everybody's smarter than me and they all know this stuff. And someone once told me a thing that I found greatly comforting. They said, people love the story they know. Hmm. And it's so true, right? That's why children watch movies over and over again. Even if you go in a situation where some proportion of the audience does know your topic, they really enjoy seeing a good story well told. Oh, yeah. Especially and, like at the local user groups. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's a, easy, it's a great place to start, right? If you're prepared, they will love you and they will support you and you can feel it. I mean, all of us have given talks. Like, how does it feel when you're on stage? You get up there, does it feel like they hate you? No. 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 It's like everyone there wants you to succeed. Yeah, it feels like they love yeah. you. And I think people who haven't given a talk and who are still stuck in that like pre-talk terror, like, (laughs) right? Like the (laughs) fantasy that you have is that they're going to hate you and eat you and that um, mean people are going to ask you questions that make you look like a fool. That's what it feels like if you've never given a talk. But the reality of giving a talk is very different, right? They love you. You can feel them rooting for you when you get up there. They're very generous and sympathetic as long as you're prepared. And if you're nervous, even if you're visibly nervous, they just double down on the rooting for you. And by prepared, we don't mean expert in that category. You don't need to be able to answer all the questions. You need to be able to talk about it for the 45 minutes in some sort of coherent fashion. But if there's a question you don't know the answer to, well, my strategy is always, gosh, I don't know. Does anybody else here know? And somebody does. I remember doing that to you in a talk once. And somebody does, and then the whole audience is like bonded together and happier. And if they don't, well, worst case, well, that was an interesting question. Um, Give me your email address and I'll find out and get back to you. Thank you. And if you're still terrified at the idea of taking questions, don't take questions. You can get up there and you can say, I want to leave the stage for somebody else, but I am happy to answer questions uh, afterwards. So come see me. Yeah, good point. There's a trend at conferences toward less taking of questions at the end of talks. And and I, I like that trend. It helps avoid the thesis statement masquerading as a question, which, uh, incidentally, I did earlier in this call. <laughs> That's okay, Sam. You're you're here because we think you're interesting. We love you, Sam. Aw, thank you. I love is a strong word, but I'm glad you're here, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I did it to Dave. You could do it to me. <laughs> And I want to follow this up with an offer. I am uh, obviously not the world's most experienced conference speaker, but if there are any first-time submitters out there who are looking for help on their CFP or uh, reviews on their talks, uh, subject to my availability, I am happy to help you out. Thanks, Sam. Now is the time in the show when we get to reflect upon what we have learned and provide like our takeaway or maybe an action item that the audience could take away from this podcast. Who wants to go first? I'll go first. Caroline, we'll go first. For one thing, um, the talk about the process of writing a book and what you learned about each other and learned about yourselves is giving me some inspiration to return to work on my book, which is about empathy and software development. A lot of trouble writing a book because I'm still learning empathy and I'm still practicing empathy. But I think I'm inspired to start writing it and to write it, I think, now for myself 10 years ago, who really needed it more than I would like to admit. The other thing that I got out of this conversation 
um, when we're talking about dry and code duplication, how it's easy to spot structural duplication and harder to spot the duplication of ideas. I'm a very visual person, and I think I think about software in very visual terms. And I want to spend some time exploring whether that visual interpretation of code is the shape of code in the abstract or is the shape of the code that's written on screen. And um, I'm going to do some reflection on that. I'm going to follow up on that since you just mentioned dry. It was very interesting to me how there's a little bit of uh, controversy around the notion that duplication is better than the wrong abstraction. And I've been uh, sort of espousing that, thinking about that hard for the last year or so. And there's some confusion in the world about, you know, what's good, what's bad. It was very interesting for me to hear the group of you have that the discussion that you had, we had about duplication versus what, what is duplication, how is abstraction. It, it makes me feel more confident even than that idea and more able to resist calls to dry things out prematurely. I want to take this in a completely different direction. There's something very interesting about being reminded that people think of you in a different way than you yourself do or I myself think about myself. I'm often shocked to realize that someone is nervous to talk to me because they've seen me on Twitter or seen a talk that I've done. And this idea that I am famous and therefore I wrote a book or I am famous and therefore I do talks, um, I think is really important to go back to this idea that we are humans and we have ideas and sharing those ideas makes us visible to other humans. And that can have various consequences, but it's this process of sharing that's way more interesting which guess that takes us back to the speaking and how incredibly important and impactful speaking can be for your career. I know certainly for my career, it's been incredibly important. I have opportunities that I did not have. I meet people that I would not have met because I at some point chose to get up on stage and talk about refactoring in front of people who most certainly knew more about it than I do. Even though I've already gone, can I go again? Yeah. Yes, what she said. <laughs> Right. I wrote a book, but it started with a talk and it changed my life in ways that were I could never have imagined, never have imagined it. Maybe you don't want these changes in your life, but I love my life now. I have a lot more control. I have a lot. I mean, the pressure is a little bit higher, but the ways in which I can manage my own affairs and do what I want to do, spend my time the way I want to spend it started out by getting on stage. And so you, you just don't know where that's going to lead. And talks in particular are interesting because you're sharing an idea with a live audience and you usually get some opportunity to interact with them afterward. And that gives you feedback about what was important in those ideas. And then you can go on to share them in books and things. Yes. Well, as long as we're dogpiling on Katrina's reflections, I would like to get in on this, too, <laughs> and say that, Katrina, your uh, decision to speak and your speaking career has also been impactful on my career, <laughs> because I wouldn't have met you or Sandy, uh, and I certainly wouldn't have given my refactoring talk if you hadn't started off with yours. So thank you. Thank you. I had no idea. Cool. Way yeah. back in the beginning of this podcast, this was my surprise takeaway. Y'all talked about how you gave each other feedback. Katrina gave Sandy feedback on the book, uh, on Pooter, and then you gave each other feedback on talks and things. And eventually that led to this collaboration. 
that kind of development of a friendship, of a working relationship with someone who will push you, who is also working on the same path that you're on to some degree, but also on their own, and you can level each other up a bit, that is super essential to our learning and growing as a community and as a team. And that's something to look for in a job or at a user group or wherever you can find it, because people really grow by bouncing off of each other. And in particular, we also talked about how Sandy said that she loves working with people. And that's something else to look for. I want to work with people who are not like me, but whom I like. And I also think that liking people is mostly a choice. So that's almost everybody. And I'm really glad that I get the opportunity to do that in programming and in speaking and in this podcast. Yay. So I had uh, at least two reflections. The first of which was that uh, it was really good to hear that helping others realize things on their own is uh, so much greater than just telling them the answer. Uh, It was a really good reminder to me um, about the second reflection that I have, which is that I really need to keep practicing better self-control, both in my own coding and also in my mentoring, uh, especially with regard to that first thing about letting people figure things out for themselves and just sort of trying to nudge them in the right direction. So I'm going to try and work on both of those. Thank you. This has been an absolutely wonderful conversation. Thank you, Sandy, and thank you, Katrina, for joining us on Episode 8 of Greater Than Code. Um, Yes, and thank you to all of our listeners, especially the ones who support us on Patreon and come into our Slack channel and ask guest questions. Yes, and if you want to be one of those supporters and get access to our Slack community, go to patreon.com slash greater than code. We are at this point 100% listener funded, and we want to continue that tradition, but we do need some more help to achieve our target goal. So if you can help out, please do. Thank you, and we'll talk to you next week.